This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everyone. Today I have a return guest, Karen Gonzalez, and she is going to be talking about her book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belonging. Thank you so much for being a returning guest, Karen. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. It's great to be here with you. I've been so excited to talk about your book. I have loved it. And when you came on last time, you talked about your refugee story, your very personal story of immigrating to the United States, which is also covered in your book. But can you lay out a little bit of how your book is constructed and why you wrote it? Sure. So first, I wrote this book because I've been working for an organization that resettles refugees and serves immigrants. Our whole work in the U.S. is to the foreign-born. And as a result, I read a lot uh, about refugees, about immigrants, and I started to notice a common theme, and that was that no immigrants, no former refugees were writing down our stories. All our stories were being told by the dominant culture, by white people, And don't get me wrong, I don't think that that's horrible or anything. There's a place for that. But there's also a place for us to tell our own stories because we bring a perspective that's different and that's really needed in the conversation. And as I looked around, I didn't see that. And Mm. that's that's really the main reason that I wrote the book. As a matter of fact, I went to see Hamilton and I was so inspired because, you know, I thought, this is so interesting that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda thought to tell this story from the perspective of this outsider, of mm-hmm. this immigrant from the Caribbean, mm-hmm. and the way that his life um, develops in the U.S. among the other, you know, quote-unquote founding fathers. Mm-hmm. So that's really what motivated me to, mm-hmm. to write the book. And in terms of the way that I laid it out is I, as I re- began to reflect, you know, you write a book proposal, mm-hmm. it's like a 40 page document. <laughs> it is incredibly long. Mm-hmm. And I began to see how much the story of migration uh, was also my story of beginning as um, a foreigner, a stranger, and then moving toward mm-hmm. becoming part of the family of God. Mm-hmm. And so I structured the book where Um, It's 11 chapters. Five of those chapters are my story of immigration, but they're also um, shaped according to the Catholic uh, sacraments. Mm. And so the first one is baptism. Then you have communion, confirmation. um, Then there's uh, anointing the sick. And then there's reconciliation Mm. or confession. So I didn't use marriage or holy orders because Mm -hmm. I'm not married. Neither have I taken, you know, have I been ordained Mm -hmm. or taken vows. Mm -hmm. So so those are the two that I left out. Mm -hmm. But in between those chapters, I also tell the story of a biblical immigrant in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are people that mostly we have not been taught to see as immigrants. Uh, we've been mm. taught to just, you know, see them as people in the Bible. But in fact, the Bible tells a lot of stories of the movement of people. And, you know, the first time we meet Abraham, the first thing we learn about him is that he's migrating Mm -hmm. to another land. And so I wanted to give people those lenses. I wanted them to see that most of us don't have the lenses we need to read the Bible from the margins Mm. because that's not who's teaching the Bible. That's not who's like leading in seminaries. Um, And so really, we have to read the Bible in the community of other people to be able to see that. And so... I wanted my book to be such a book, mm-hmm. uh, one that would help people to see how much the people centered in the Bible are those on the margins, not just immigrants, but the poor, the orphan, the widows, um, all the people who the dominant culture ignores. And you went to Fuller Theological Seminary. When I read this book, I'm like, uh-huh, here, here comes the... <laughs> Here it comes. And it's it's great. Um, a lot of 
biblical stuff is in there a lot of and a lot of things about um like you're saying that the immigrant story what's what's great i i hope that people who are listening to this i'm not entirely sure who all that that encompasses but that we read stories from different perspectives and not the dominant culture that is such if i could underscore that three times highlight it in exclamation points um we're talking about abraham the father of three of the monotheistic dominant faiths of of the world dominant religions of the world he's an immigrant and he's also you mentioned a criminal too mm-hmm. <laughs> he's yeah. a he's a criminal illegal immigrant <laughs> and i don't think you know that's not going to maybe even sit well with people but the, but that's the truth and then that's also why is that important so you know as you flush this out from a from a new way that a lot of people are going to be like oh yeah you know what of course of course he is but you know that's included in the bible because well why don't you tell us <laughs> why do you think that's included in the bible and and you talk a little bit about um why this occurs and and um this puts abraham in a terribly vulnerable spot but god cares for him uh, very particularly mhm yeah so i think one of the interesting things about being an immigrant is there is a there's a myth out in our culture and that's the myth of the good immigrant there is a good kind of immigrant and this immigrant is basically perfect they are hard working they serve the dominant culture you know for example they work in uh custodial work and they do house cleaning and you know mm-hmm. all these kind of service jobs where they take care of people in the dominant culture nannies right mm-hmm. all this kind of work and they're supposed to be like law abiding and they're supposed to be humble and grateful for for what mm. they get and i wanted people to see abraham in a different light because i wanted them to recognize that abraham is just a person a person trying to live as faithfully as he can mm-hmm. and that's really the story of immigrants they are just people our expectation that mm-hmm. somehow because they left their homeland for whatever reason it's not always a story of tragedy sometimes it's a story of adventure sometimes it's mm-hmm. a story of opportunity mm-hmm. they've left their homeland but they're just people mm-hmm. arriving in another land and they're people who will make mistakes mm-hmm. they're people who have flaws and uh issues of character fears that they will uh work out just like all of us mm-hmm. and so in the story of abraham most of us one don't think of him as an immigrant yes. let alone a criminal one <laughs> exactly <laughs> and and yet abraham who is this you know father of our faith right the great patriarch whom mm-hmm. to whom god made all these promises makes significant mistakes acts out of fear mm-hmm. uh out of fear to preserve his own life he essentially traffics his wife you know mm-hmm. i mean i do understand that women back then were seen as property they were not seen as equal mm-hmm. to men um and that's what he does he treats her um he grows wealthy while she becomes this vulnerable person in pharaoh's home mm-hmm. and so he also crosses into um Egypt. I mean, borders didn't exist in the ancient world in the way that we understand them, but there were separate lands and there mm-hmm. was some kind of gate of some kind that where they arrived um mm-hmm. to enter. And so he lies, he commits fraud and he says she's my sister, which is a mm-hmm. convenient sort of half truth. She is his half sister. Um but neglects to mention she's also my wife <laughs> and Oops. so he commits fraud at this port of entry mm-hmm. and he enters a land that's not his own but mm-hmm. also abraham isn't seeking to harm anyone mm-hmm. there's a famine in the land and egypt just had less effects of mm-hmm. of famine because of the nile right these yeah. rich fertile riverbanks mm-hmm. and so I wanted people to sort of have a holistic understanding of hey this was Abraham's situation and most of us forgive him these things mm-hmm. we forgive him these faults because mm-hmm. we put them in the context of his whole story mm-hmm. and yet we don't seem to do that for immigrants today mm-hmm. we want to tell a story about this perfect you know grateful immigrant um and yet one of our you know the great 
leaders of our faith, that's Mm -hmm. a model of faith, in fact, in Hebrews 11, Mm -hmm. is a person who, who, like immigrants today, was deeply flawed, but also was doing the best he could Mm -hmm. to take care of himself and his family. Yeah, he's trying to survive just like any family Mm -hmm. would try to survive. And he's also being faithful to his calling that that God draws him out of his own land. And I I think we sometimes don't see that that's kind of many people's story. Right. Um, You talk also about Ruth and one of the few times immigrants are treated in the Bible fairly uh most of the time as as it happens you know people are treated unkindly and unfairly and and are not treated as god's laws try to protect them in the in the hebrew laws but in the case of ruth that actually is one of the good stories the stories where the foreigner and the immigrant is treated fairly with the with the welfare um laws for the poor that they can glean from the corners of the fields and things like that and um that's a that's kind of that's really a touching story about how uh, people are welcomed into God's family into the into even the um, you know the nation of God as foreigners as poor and they're invited to take from the extras. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, what inspired you or what stood out to you about Ruth's story? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I learned so much from um, rabbis, scholarly rabbis, (laughs) Mm. uh, about this story of Ruth and about the Hebrew scriptures in general. Um, And I just remember reading uh, a particular rabbi who, who talked about the book of Ruth being this vision of holistic care for the foreigner Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of extended that to sort of see the book of Ruth as an ideal, mm-hmm. as the sort of Eden for the way that a community was blessed by obeying the command of God to welcome an immigrant. And there was so much mutuality in it. I think often we mm-hmm. have a, a message mm-hmm. that is perpetuated in the church and that's, and that's like welcome immigrants, right? Welcome the stranger mm. and stand with them. And we welcome refugees, all of that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I don't think that should be the end of the message because mm-hmm. then it just makes us feel like we're these wonderful white saviors, right? Mm. <laughs> but in fact, the transformation that God desires is one of mutuality, mm-hmm. not one that just moves in one direction. Mm. And what you see in the book of Ruth is that this community welcomes a vulnerable foreigner and they treat her exactly as the law of God commands. They treat her as one of their own. Mm-hmm. She gleans in the fields, she eats with them, she drinks from their water containers, she's protected from abuse and exploitation. She even marries into this community mm-hmm. and becomes part, you know, of the lineage of Jesus. And they do all of this and they're blessed too. Mm-hmm. It's not just her that's cared for mm-hmm. and blessed in this exchange, but also them. They receive so much from Ruth. Mm-hmm. And so I love the picture that's painted in that text where you see this is what we could be living. If we trusted and believed God's word um, and as he tells us to to interact with foreigners and immigrants and those on the margins, if we truly welcome them and cared for them, this is the blessing that we could receive as well. And it's not necessarily a monetary blessing. You know, it's not a wealth, health thing, but just this idea of God in our midst and us doing justice, you know, for those on the margins. So, yeah, the beloved community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's the grandmother of King David then. Um, right. It's just, it's, yeah, it's, if if we allow that, God blesses that. One of the things you juxtapose then very severely later on, we notice this this huge um, other thing happening in the book where you get the, you draw the name of the book out, The God Who Sees, is something Hagar says um, of God. You are El, is it El Roy? I don't know how El she... Roy. El, El Roy. 
El Roy, the God who sees, Hagar responds to God uh, in this extraordinary exchange with God, because her name means foreign thing. In biblical Hebrew, you say, I did not know that. That was really, her story is really amazing because she's, she's a slave from Egypt from, for Sarah of, you know, Abraham and Sarah. So they have, you know, a, an enslaved person in their keep and she's treated very poorly. She's used as a, you know, to have a son so that this prophecy could be fulfilled, that God's promise can be fulfilled because they're going about it in their own way. And then she's just tossed, but God doesn't um, forget her and God blesses her. Uh, this was a really powerful part of your book that may be one of my favorite parts. Um, and maybe you can talk about Hagar as a foreigner and um, the special place God has for her. Yes, I love the story of Hagar, and I learned so much from uh, Black female theologians about mm -hmm. Hagar. Mm -hmm. um, they have taken on Hagar as the symbol because she was believed to be like a dark-skinned person as mm -hmm. well, an African person. Mm -hmm. So the story of Hagar to me is deeply meaningful because here you have someone First, you have Abraham and Sarah, who you would think having been mistreated and having lived in fear in Egypt, would now turn around with a foreigner living in their household and would be kind, would be, mm. you know, uh, welcoming. But instead, they treat Hagar with this, in the same way that they were treated, uh, mm. essentially, which is an unfortunate part of the human condition, it seems like. Mm. Um, and so... Hagar arrives. She's a young woman. She is foreign. She is enslaved. Some versions of the Bible said she's a, a maid, but in any case, mm -hmm. she is um, forced to bear a child mm -hmm. uh, that, that won't be considered her own. It'll be considered Abraham and Sarah's because Sarah thinks mm -hmm. she's too old and that God may not come through. So let me just take care of this on my own. Mm -hmm. And then she's mistreated. Um, so there are biblical scholars who believe that translation actually says that Sarah oppressed her. Mm. And so Hagar runs away into the desert. And, and that's where the story really takes an unexpected turn. Mm -hmm. Because this person who was considered who would be considered so insignificant, right, in this ancient world, a, a, an enslaved woman, a dark-skinned woman, a young woman, God appears to her, mm. a messenger of God appears and has a special message for her. Mm. And the way that this messenger of God appears to her is exactly the way a messenger of God appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mm. It's the exact same structure. You have presenting themselves to her, promising her a future, promising her, you're going to give birth, it's going to be a son, I want you to name him this, exactly mm -hmm. what was told um, to Mary in, in the New Testament. And so Hagar returns um, to, the, to her oppressors and then runs away again later after the child is born and, and is growing and then Sarah has her own child. Mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden she's not wanted in the household mm -hmm. anymore. So she runs away a second time and God appears to her again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so momentous mm -hmm. that God would choose to appear to this person that everybody in the world at that time would say, this is not a significant person. This mm -hmm. is no one. Why would, you know, why mm -hmm. would God do this? And yet God sees her and God says, you're going to see your son grow up. He's going to marry from among your own people. Mm. You're going to prosper. You're going to have a future. Mm. You're going to have hope. And she does. You know, God liberates her. Mm. And in fact, her son marries from among her own people. So to me, the story of Hagar, I mean, it's painful to read when God asks her to return to this mm. household. But the end is so redemptive and so triumphant. And for me, I likened it so much to the story of my uh, my grandmother, my abuelita that I talk about in my mm -hmm. book, who was undocumented all but the last five years, you know, that she was alive. 
and she worked as a domestic in a wealthy American household. Um, she never got past like the sixth grade in school and she really was not anyone who was seen Mm. um, in our culture. As a matter of fact, her desire was not to be seen, right? (laughs) To be remain under the radar because when you're undocumented, that's a really critical thing. And, and yet she was the mother, the spiritual mother of our family. She was the one who was resilient. She was the one who was strong. You know, she was the one who cared for us and she was the one who taught us about Jesus and, and yet so unseen and so unimportant in the culture, but so critical in our lives of faith. And I just think about that family that my grandma worked for who lived in this mansion, you know, in, in, uh, in Los Angeles and how they never saw her. Mm. They never saw her as, as this, uh, spiritual mother. They never saw her for the value that she had in the world. Mm. And all of that for me, I think that there are so many people like that in our culture. After I, a friend of mine read my book, she said, you know, after I read your book, I started, I was walking, you know, to the metro and I saw a man uh, who looked like he was Latino and he was, you know, washing the windows outside of this like, you know, skyscraper kind of building. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered about his life and I wondered who he was and who the people were that he cared for and uh, what kind of education he had and the gifts that he had to offer, the talents, the faith. Who was he, you know? And I think God sees all of that, even though we don't have eyes, it seems, Mm. that God does see all of that, just as God saw Hagar in her oppression and her exploitation. And so... Yeah, the story was really critical to me. And that's why I took the title from there, because Mm -hmm. I thought it's such a powerful story in a time when immigrants are being demonized, uh, when the the rhetoric around immigration is so violent and there's so much injustice around detention and the separation of families is like God sees. Not only does Mm -hmm. God see these immigrants and he values them and he endows them with dignity, but God sees us Mm -hmm. in our oppression, Mm -hmm. you know, in our contribution to these systems. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, sorry, very long answer to that. No, it's wonderful. On page 106, you write that Professor Richard Beck says, we don't show hospitality, be to anyone, especially to the immigrant, to be like Jesus. We show hospitality to welcome Jesus. And, you know, it's true that that Jesus and his family were, were actually immigrants at one point to Egypt, too, just like Abraham and, and others. When, when things got rough, people did go to Egypt, whether it was for famine or uh, for some kind of escape. And lots of people have been immigrants, even the, the Holy Family. Um, and I think that's easy to, to think, you know, Jesus was like an American or something like that. Right. But, that, but his family had to flee and... and rely on the, the help and hospitality of, of others and be foreigners in a foreign land. Um, I think sometimes we think that's, you know, that happens elsewhere. It's other people's problems. It's other things. It's not, doesn't hit so close to home. But actually, if we're Christians, it, hit, it is home. The, the foreigner is the story of Jesus and is the story of Christianity and, and the welcoming Jesus part um, has to be the first thing we th- we think of when we think of uh, our brothers and sisters who are refugees, who are immigrants. They're Jesus. They're they're bringing us the gospel. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, one of the things that was really pivotal for you, you mentioned on page sixty-eight, um, Oscar Romero of El Salvador created a pivotal shift for you, and there's a a quote that you have in here that he mentioned, and I would like you to speak to, after I read this little quote, hopefully not too, in a too bumbling way, but <laughs> um, about the effect that that reading about his life and, and understanding what he did, how that affected how you see your work, and he's, and, and also the 
the role of the church, he writes, uh, or he said, a church that does not provoke crisis, a gospel that does not disturb, a word of God that does not rankle, a word of God that does not touch the concrete sin of the society in which it is being proclaimed. What kind of gospel is that? Just nice, pious considerations that bother nobody. Yes, Romero was something. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was a very a modern day saint, um, I believe. Yeah, I was really deeply moved by his story. It was one of the first times that I saw the gospel as something appealing and attractive that I wanted to be a part of, even though it took a while for me to get there after that. Um, mm. I think that, you know, when I became a follower of Jesus, which I in college is really where it happened, where I mm -hmm. finally kind of understood more and was able to actively walk into that. I always wondered about this process, discipleship, this becoming like Jesus, a student mm. of Jesus, right? A disciple. Yeah. Because it just seemed like I was becoming a disciple in order to sort of be a better person, to not think bad thoughts and not be greedy and not be selfish. Mm. But it didn't seem to really impact the world in any way, this discipleship. Mm -hmm. And I felt that was really limiting. It mm. just seemed like oh, so I'm just going to curse less and think fewer <laughs> bad thoughts and, uh, you know, leave leftovers for my housemate. And that that's, that's the end goal of mm -hmm. my discipleship. It just didn't seem to me mm. to make any sense. Like, why would God care so much just about those things? Mm -hmm. And I think what Romero did for me is he really expanded my understanding of discipleship, that it can't just be your own pious considerations. It has to impact the world that you live in. And mm -hmm. that's what he did. Mm -hmm. He he impacted the world. And a lot of people point to the liberation uh, theologians in Latin America during this period and say, well, this period was a failure. You know, these they they didn't bring on any systemic change and basically they were all killed or exiled mm -hmm. out of the church because, you know, Pope John Paul mm -hmm. being a Polish um, Pope who had lived under the rule of communism, of course, was fearful of where these priests, where he thought these priests were heading, which was towards socialism. It was just a perfect storm of mm -hmm. a lot of bad things coming together. But essentially, I don't think it was a failure. I think that Romero taught us so much. And the fact that he stood with the poor and the oppressed of El Salvador, the fact that we're still speaking his mm -hmm. name mm -hmm. and talking about the issues that he highlighted, I think it shows this ongoing work of God. Mm. You know, I think in the West, we're really impatient. We really live in a sort of microwave oven kind of culture where we want things mm -hmm. instantly. Mm. But I think what we see in the life of Romero is that we have to trust that God is at work and the things we're not seeing or understanding in the way that it seems as if things couldn't be worse, mm -hmm. that God is at work. And this is what the people who followed God in the Bible believed in, right? They believed in a promise that most of them never saw fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And this is what I love about the story of Romero that he never abandoned the sacraments. He didn't abandon the things that draw us into God's presence, mm -hmm. but he also called for justice and worked for it. He also mm -hmm. stood side by side with the poor and the marginalized, mm -hmm. and he didn't see himself as different mm -hmm. from them. He saw like our struggles tied together because we're human beings, you know, and essentially mm -hmm. he saw God in them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, his story is deeply powerful. I still can't watch mm. that film, you know, or read anything by him. It really <laughs> chokes me up because mm -hmm. it's it feels so deeply close and personal to me. Mm. Yeah, for people who don't know, he um, just for a little background. I did this on uh, partially on one of the Soul School episodes I did, but he was really um, upsetting to the government because he was basically calling into question uh, who was in power and, and who was being hurt. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about 
um, some of the things that got him killed just briefly so people kind of who don't understand who he was can get a sense. Sure. Yeah, essentially Romero was um, selected to be the archbishop, which is the highest position in the Catholic Church in, in a country, the Archbishop of El Salvador, because he was this sort of bookish, not political, uh, very concerned with correct doctrine, um, very, very unthreatening mm. kind of person. And so he was put in this position as a result of this reputation that he had. Mm. And what happens soon as after he, he takes this office is that a good friend of his, mm. uh, Father Rutilio Grande, is, is murdered. Mm-hmm. And this is like this pivotal point in his life where he completely changes because Father Grande was in fact really involved in political protests and bringing uh, the poor to to vote, for example, he would hire these mm-hmm. buses, and he was really advocating for change, systemic change within the country to do justice for the poor and for the marginalized. And so this event was so critical that it changed Romero. And all of a sudden, he was no longer this quiet, non-political, mm-hmm. bookish person, but he became deeply involved in the movement for freedom. And one of the things that he did that really threatened the government is that at the homilies, um, that he that he would have, he would read the names of the mm-hmm. dead and the disappeared mm-hmm. because this is what was happening, right? The government, funded by the U.S., uh, was trying to keep the country from becoming socialist, and so they would mm-hmm. murder, rape, disappear people, and Romero would just read the names, and it was his way of saying mm-hmm. these people will not be forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, we will not allow that to happen. And this was so threatening to the government. Mm-hmm. Just this act of remembrance, of of remembering the dead and naming them and saying, mm-hmm. no, this will not stand. Mm-hmm. And so it's believed the government had him um, assassinated. He was assassinated in the middle of the Eucharist. I mean, literally, he was blessing the, the bread and the cup um, and he was murdered. Somebody ran into the back of the church and shot him. And it's just a brutal, violent death for a man of peace, you know, for a man who, of love, who loved the poor. And as a matter of fact, he's known for a book where he talks about the violence of love. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a crazy story. He was shot through the heart and dies right there on the altar area in the altar area. And He's also just showing that God sees. He's reading those names, and he's like, mm-hmm. God God sees these people. You know, God right. knows. And that is enough conviction to, like, we got to get him out. We got to get him out. Because I don't know who else would want to get rid of him except for someone who wants to keep him quiet. Um, you talk about reconciliation involves four parts in the Catholic Church, contrition, confession, penance, and absolution. And uh, that's towards the end of the book. I love that section. Um, And then getting back to the sacraments, on page 70, you say, um, I embrace the Eucharist as a mystery of faith. It helps me identify and share with Christ's suffering, with Christ and his suffering. Um, As I think about the plight of refugees and immigrants, not just in the United States, but around the world, I know that Christ suffers with them. When I take communion now, kneeling at the front of my Lutheran church, I remember that I serve a God who knew pain. I remember that I serve a man of sorrows, a suffering servant who sees immigrants and their suffering and remembers them. I I bring this up for there's several things going on here is that you're going to a Lutheran church, you're involving Catholic things as well, and you're, you're speaking also about Jesus, the man of sorrows, um, and how much the Eucharist and the mystery affects your faith. Maybe you can just speak to one of those points or, or say something about that. Yeah. So it's interesting. When I first started going to <laughs> evangelical churches, because I mm-hmm. attended evangelical churches for a long time after I became a more serious follower of Jesus as a mm-hmm. college student, 
And I remember asking, like, how come we only have communion once a month? Mm -hmm. And how come, you know, because when I'd been in the Catholic Church and I did my first communion, it was a really serious thing. It involved Mm -hmm. classes and learning and all of this. Mm -hmm. And we had communion every Sunday uh, together. And so I wondered why it was so different Mm -hmm. in the evangelical church and and in many mainline churches, not just the evangelical church. And... And my pastor was just like, well, you know, it's to, you know, he explained something like it's just tradition really within the event, within the, uh, the tradition of the evangelical church. And it's, you know, we take it very seriously when we do it. And, um, and I was like, yeah, but then why don't we do it every, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and so, and they also said it was just a symbol. Mm -hmm. It was a way to sort of remember Jesus. Anyway, this is what this pastor said. I'm not representing every church here, Mm -hmm. but to me, that seemed like. So we just do this to remember Jesus, but aren't we supposed to remember Jesus anyway? Like, if that's all we're doing. So I appreciated the Lutheran view of communion. And, I, you know, in other traditions as well, in the Catholic Church, it's the actual body and blood of Christ. They believe it changes, right, as you take it mm-hmm. after they're consecrated. And in the evangelical church, it's, it's, it's pretty much strictly a symbol in most churches. But the Lutheran church has sort of this middle way of mm-hmm. it being the presence of it being mm-hmm. more than a symbol, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but less than the actual body and blood of Christ. And then there's, there's the presence of God within it and how that happens is actually mysterious, right? How it's mm-hmm. happening, but that that's what it is. And I, I think I love that. I love that sort of mixture mm. <laughs> of of it being more than a symbol and we also take it every sunday we actually come up to the mm. front and we kneel at the you know front of the church and we mm-hmm. take it um from from the pastor and i love that it's always been a, an incredibly meaningful thing to me there's been periods of my life where i've really suffered one you know my, when my mom died but also other periods of time that have just been deeply difficult for me to process and Mm -hmm. the Eucharist or communion has always been a place of comfort, a place of sort of entering Mm. into Christ's presence, knowing that I serve a God who suffered too, Mm. knowing that Jesus was this man of sorrows. And I think now when I take communion, I'm in a, a pretty good place in my life right now. But I think a lot about the suffering that's going on in the world, about the greatest refugee crisis we've ever faced, mm. about the families being separated at the border, about children mm. living in detention and concentration camp-like conditions. And it's deeply grieving to me, mm. but it's also deeply comforting to know that Jesus sees this and that mm. Jesus is present with those who suffer. Mm. So, Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> well, I like, I like your response. I don't know it was exactly a question. It was like throwing it up in the air and seeing what comes down. But I, but I know what you mean. The the mystery of communion or the Eucharist um, is this, you know, physical thing. And of course, some Christians just think of it as a symbol. But uh, a lot of times, you're, it's a, a sacrament is a physical thing that that uh, symbolizes something that, that can't be seen the something abstract or uh, a reality that is an unseen reality but it as as Jesus stepped into our suffering God the invisible God who can't be seen became Jesus the seen the incarnated steps into our suffering in our world um, this bread is is like part of this you know it, it doesn't totally make sense in these rational reasonable ways but sometimes when you have communion and you take this bread and you ingest it you you something clicks and you think now jesus's body and is part of me and i can i can carry this forward and i know that doesn't it's not going to make sense to a lot of people who haven't <laughs> experienced it yeah but um sometimes though for me anyway it's a thin place where even i could say a trinitarian experience happens um where god is father son and spirit meet me and um the veil 
to the mystery is thinner or something. And, um, and I do wish that I think our, my particular church, maybe it's every six weeks or something, but when I grew up in it, it was a fairly legalistic kind of Mm-hmm. church but they did a what what they called breaking of bread and it was every single week and there was something about that becoming part of my very close to my knowledge every single week this is Jesus with you um it was seen as a symbol but for me I wasn't even thinking of it as a symbol I was thinking of it as this is Jesus with me and it became the presence do you know Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird because it became sacramental to me, and even though it was supposed to be symbolic. But I, yeah, I, I don't know what to do with the mystery of, of the Eucharist, but there's yeah. something that, that bonds all Christians uh, in the same way with it. And, and you can take communion. I was just thinking this. Um, I took communion for the first time at an Episcopal church, an Episcopal service. It's, it was like a high church, all, all liturgy. And I was able to go up and it was an open communion and I could take from the chalice and take the wafer. And I thought, here I am taking this. uh, And so are so many people around the world right now. And so many Christians before me and so many Christians in the future will do this. And we are one in Christ, uh, despite some doctrinal differences maybe, but... um, world without end you know there, there's just something else going on there that felt like oneness and anyway i'm waxing on now but um maybe you can talk a little bit about reconciliation on page 138 you talk about confession and reconciliation where foreigners become citizens and strangers become family that's so powerful and i really appreciated that you had that in there what can you say about reconciliation yeah, I, you know, I love that in the Catholic Church, this that confession and reconciliation is actually a sacrament. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's something very powerful mm-hmm. in that, mm-hmm. that um, thinking of it as this sacramental, as a sacred act of confessing and repenting and returning mm-hmm. to God, right? Mm-hmm. And I was really moved by that. But I also thought about reconciliation as really what a lot of especially people from my generation, as far as being an immigrant, I'm really the 1.5 generation, not the second, because I came Mm -hmm. here as a child. So Mm -hmm. I was still able to become fully bicultural Mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, I am American, but I also remember what it was like Mm -hmm. to live in, in Guatemala. And I love this idea of strangers becoming family, strangers becoming citizens, becoming part of the family of God. And which is what happens in reconciliation. You, Mm. you, you are reconciled back to God. You, you, you remove what stood between you and God. Um, and, and you return, right? Mm. It's, it's that, it's that return. And so I found that just a really beautiful act. And I, I remember being in confession as a child, because in the Catholic church, of course, it's a serious thing. There's a confessional like booth where mm-hmm. you go in and you have to actually speak and receive absolution. Mm-hmm. But I love the idea of even receiving absolution, you know, in, mm-hmm. in uh, the Lutheran church, we don't confess in that way, but there's a time in the service of silence mm-hmm. for confession. And there's a time of corporate confession where mm-hmm. we confess the way that we have failed to love God and our neighbor and then there's a time of absolution where mm. the pastor actually, you know, forgives you in the name mm. of Christ, like becomes that uh, mediator for you. And I think it's powerful. And mm. I love that it's part of the service. I love that it's a sacrament in the Catholic Church. And in some ways, it's so symbolic of the journey of immigrants, right, mm. sort of coming in. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. I. I know with um, having been raised in a evangelical low church background, um, all those things are important, but they're not sort of formalized and and made sacred. While they're part of what you do, uh, seeing them done in a formal sort of high church way uh, adds this this mystery and, and this 
set-apartness or holiness to to them that is like, that's right, that's what that is. <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah, right. I get it now. Not that I have to see it done like that every time for it to mean something, but there was something about going to high church and seeing people, um, you know, seeing the cross, you know, in a fancy sort of way, I guess, you know, seeing the cross carry down, seeing the Bible carry down and people turning towards it and bowing to it. Um, it it could seem sort of ridiculous to me in one way, like, okay, that doesn't have to happen. And, and in another way, I was like, wow, but that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to show deference to, to these things. We're trying to make our lives um, meaningful for the, for the things that we hold dear and uh, show a preference for Jesus in our lives and in the way we are in the world. Um, which is different than just saying, I believe these things, I hope I go to heaven, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, because that's the thing about integrating your life so that you aren't, like you're saying, oh, I, you know, cursing less or, you know, being nice to people or whether you're doing things in the world that matter so that the life around you changes and the lives of people can change for the better around you. Um, and I don't know how how this happens. Does it happen in, like, after you're 30, after 35? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, but, you know, did, did something happen as an impetus for you to, to think of this more seriously? Because even though you're an uh, immigrant yourself, and you know that these things matter and are important. This is your vocation now. But did you think, you know, did you think this is what I always wanted to do? Or when did it become powerful for you where you thought, I want to help people in this manner. This is what I want to do. You know, for a long time, I just thought, like I said, discipleship was just for me somehow to become a better person. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, a real pivotal change happened in seminary. Um, mm -hmm. And it happened because I started to see the way that the words that are in the Bible and the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, they spoke to particular situations, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that was really hard for me to accept when I was in seminary is we were discussing um, John, a story in John's gospel. And it was a story about, um, the blind man mm -hmm. who was healed by Jesus and his family's then afraid to mm -hmm. say something because mm -hmm. they're afraid they're going to be put out of the synagogue. Mm -hmm. And the professor in the reading that we'd done said that at the time that Jesus was alive, people were not being put out of the synagogue. Mm -hmm. However, at the time that John was writing the gospel, this, mm -hmm. this was happening. Wow. And so and so he said, John is writing both a story about Jesus and a mm -hmm. story that addresses mm -hmm. the needs and the fears of his own community. Mm -hmm. And so and these preoccupations that we have with fact and telling things exactly as they happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these were these are modern preoccupations. Mm -hmm. They were not part of mm -hmm. the, the way people thought about things mm -hmm. in the ancient world mm -hmm. of the New Testament. And I remember feeling like, oh, my gosh, so this story is true, but also not true, you know, and <laughs> and it really rocked my world in a good way because it revealed to me that God really cared about what was happening to the Christians living at the time that John was writing. Mm. And so these words were to address their fear, mm. to address where they were at, mm -hmm. and to make a difference, you know, in their lives. And mm. so the Bible wasn't just for me, for me to feel better or for me to become a slightly better person than I was before, mm. but also to bring sort of shalom to the world, right? This mm -hmm. flourishing, this mm -hmm. vision of the book of Ruth, right? Where mm. everybody thrives and not just survives, where mm. people aren't, don't just champion their own ethnic group or race or gender, but mm -hmm. they seek the good, the common good for the whole community. And that's where the change really took place for me because I think I had not been taught to read the Bible that way. Mm -hmm. I'd only been taught to sort of see what little nugget I could take away for myself for that day to mm. be a little bit better. And, you know, perhaps there's a place for that. I mm. know Father Richard Rohr, 
he talks about how being so black and white in your thinking and being, you know, very literal has its place in the life of faith in the very beginning. You kind of need that. Mm -hmm. That's how children are, you know, they're they're very, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of black and white in their thinking. But I think as we grow uh, in our relationship with God, we have to move past that Mm -hmm. and we have to move to a place where, oh, okay, I used to believe this, but now God and God's spirit is revealing this new thing. And, and how, how can this new thing be part of the way that I interact with the world and the way that I care about, uh, the people I vote for, the way that I'm involved in, in protest, the way that I'm involved in advocacy, Mm. uh, for certain communities that are being marginalized. And so Mm. I'm grateful for that season of life because it really gave me eyes to see just beyond my own little world. Mm. Yeah, and it makes sense that our relationship with God should mature and evolve, just like our relationship with maybe our parents, where we thought they knew everything, and <laughs> and it was right. one way as a child, and and we did it. We thought they could see us through the wall or something, and and uh, then we realized, oh, they're human, and they they're going to get sick, and one day I'm going to have to care for them, or, or whatever the case may be. That, of course, it evolves, and if it didn't, that would be. <laughs> be a real shortcoming on our part right uh, yeah and then of course all these things evolve if we um we're drawn out in faith and god draws us out in faith to to continue to walk and and to see things anew um i just love your book it's so rich it's very difficult to have an interview um as i was trying to prepare for this it was difficult to know how to ask questions because the book is so rich and deep on a bunch of different levels and so i'm Highly recommending the book to all the listeners listening. Uh, are there any other things that you want to say towards the book or to my listeners before we close out? Nope. It is called The God Who Sees, and it's available wherever you buy books. Very good. And where can people find you on online or anywhere else? So I love Twitter and Instagram. They're my favorites. And you can find me at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Great. And that's the same place on a website too right my website is um karen-gonzalez.com right dash yes hyphen dash hyphen dash yeah (laughs) i'm not sure which one is which one it is (laughs) yeah i think just a regular google search will do it but thank you so much karen this is so awesome i love speaking with you and i love your work and what you're doing um it just warms my heart and uh it's been so fun thank you Thank you so much, Lisa. I love being on here again and getting to chat with you and talk with you about the book.